This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. My name is Marie LeConte. According to a global survey recently commissioned by UNESCO, 85% of people are worried about the impact of online disinformation, and 87% believe it has already harmed their country's politics. In response, the United Nations has announced a plan to tackle the problem, and said that new regulation was urgently needed. According to them, independent and well-resourced public regulators must be established everywhere, and should work closely together in order to prevent digital organisations from taking advantage of national differences in regulation. Here with me today to discuss this and online disinformation in general is Carl Miller, author and co-founder of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos. Hi, Carl. Hi, Marie. Hi there, everyone. Oh, thanks for joining us. So what do you make of that big announcement by the UN? Like, well, actually, first of all, were you at all surprised by the findings of someone who works in that field? Like, did anything jump out? Well, so it's it's a meaty document, 60 pages long, and there's there's certainly a lot of devil in the detail. On the surface of it, you know, it all it all appears like reasonably sensible. You know, rights respecting frameworks have to be the things that we use in order to balance, you know, things which are intention, like freedom of speech and freedom from being persecuted for your identity or gender online. There's all these different things. There's nothing that I think the United Nations has written there, which is particularly um, easy to hate. I think there's just a several, you know, and it couldn't come at a better time because we're about to, we're about to launch into about a bajillion elections next year. And there's like very grave and deep concerns, I think, from a great number of people around the world at the moment about what those elections are going to be like. For me, actually, firstly, it's whether actually disinformation is really the problem. Ooh, okay. We will come back to that in a second. So that's kind of like foundation shaking. Um, but actually, so, yeah, but before we get into that, so why do you think it's actually taken that long for these big global organisations to start really digging into that stuff? Like, Because it's clearly been a problem for some time. It's been a problem for 10 years or more. And and, and think tanks and researchers for, for over those 10 years have been doing everything they can to, well, both like kind of draw attention to this from the public, but then to drag these large institutions into to, into actually helping with the problem. Why has it taken so long? Um, it, these are just unbelievably difficult problems. I mean, it took us seven years in the UK to get the Online Safety Act through. And that's because when you actually start to transfer the decisions around questions like what should be allowed on social media and not away from social media platforms and into these messy consensus-seeking political processes, you're always going to get these like extremely long extended experiences. Do you think the UN's plan will work? Because I feel like it's sometimes hard not to be cynical about the UN because, you know, it's all well and good to say that bad things are bad, but is anyone actually listening? It's a framework and it's guidance. So in in that sense, it can't really work uh, because we've already got quite a lot of laws already in place. So we've already got the Digital Safety Act uh, in in the EU. We've got the Online Safety Act in the UK. There's a, quite a lot of other large countries have, have began to propel forwards their own kind of regulatory approaches as well. This is rather too late, I think, to really interact with the fundamental questions that states are going to have. It's probably useful in trying to establish just some basic guidelines around what regulation in the very broadest sense should look like and to try and steer off 
some tendencies that we're going to see around trying to use this legislation to clamp down on domestic dissent. Do you think that can work realistically when there are so few policy areas where, you know, any countries can really agree kind of again on a global scale? Like, is, is it possible, do you think, to get that going? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're using the language of multi-stakeholderism, which, which probably lots of people listen to this won't be familiar with. But it, it, it's, it's the messy, weird, wonderful, colourful world of internet governance, uh, which kind of recognises in a kind of fairly enlightened way that there's no single stakeholder or even kind of stakeholder that can possibly make decisions unilaterally about what the internet should be like. And, and so that doesn't just mean states, by the way. It also means you've got civic society in there, you've got the engineers in there, you've got the tech companies in there. You know, they usually meet once a year in this kind of strange crossroads where all these different tribes of the internet kind of eat together and argue with each other and and, and go to strange parties hosted by tech giants and, and things like that. I've been to I've been to several of these myself. As far as I can see, it's trying to drag those principles and that ethos away from these kind of more fundamental, more network engineering questions that largely they've been dealing with and into the world of content, into the world of online harms, of hate speech, of of terrorism online and things like that. I'm going to have to come back to what you said earlier, because this is technically a podcast about disinformation. And then mm. you sort of so you yeah. drop the bomb saying you, you don't <laughs> necessarily think that's the problem. So what did you mean by that? I think disinformation is an absolutely horrendous way of describing the threats that we're facing online, this strange new stable of information threats, especially, say, if we, if we think about all the elections happening next year. When you actually pull apart the kinds of online phenomena which interfere with elections, what you quickly realise is the problem is not lies propagating around on the internet. That, is, that has never been the problem. The problem is concerted, orchestrated, well-financed and professional influence campaigns. These campaigns, you know, they're, they're, some of these are conducted by states, sometimes by private sector actors, sometimes by dodgy political campaigners. Um, they see information as a theatre of war. They see it as a place that conflict happens within. And, they'll, and it's a whole tradecraft, really, which is being developed and now used to try and um, use these information spaces to create um, illicit, covert forms of influence. And the absolutely most important thing to realise about these campaigns, whether it's being done by Russia, China, Iran, or anyone else, is that lying is only one of a whole array of different ways in which influence can happen. And often when you actually pull apart these campaigns, campaigns which Facebook has told us is coming from the Russian intelligence bureaucracy, like you realise that actually the vast majority of what they're doing isn't lying. It's making one truth more visible than another. It's operating at the level of meaning or belonging. They're dealing with things like patriotism or things like what it means to be a man or a woman. It deals with how people feel, not what they think. And actually, the vast majority of that content, were it done, Marie, by you or me, would be absolutely fine. It's activism. It's um, it's making a point of view known via social media. It's talking about an election. But the problem is that it's being done by, well, probably a contractor for the FSB or the SVR or, or any other intelligence bureaucracy, setting up the problem as essentially being one where falsehoods are going around online, like completely misunderstands both how illicit influence works and how it's being done, but then also like basically the nature of this, the organisational and financial underpinnings of it, and how we should respond. We're never, ever, ever going to deal with lies circulating on social media platforms. We'll never have a consensus over what those lies are. 
We'll never have a consensus over what should be done around them. And if and and it will remain as it as it increasingly is in the states now, going to be the the world of online harms will become this like incendiary flaming political football that will just become this touch point for everyone that's concerned around um, transgressions around freedom of speech. And so like with the benefit of hindsight, because obviously social media especially has been around for quite some time now, do you think there's a world in which that stuff would not have happened? Like, Is there a way in which we could have had those social media platforms that build in the way they didn't become as popular as they have become without all those states and actors, etc., trying to muscle in? Like, Could they have been kept out from the beginning or is, is that just not something that could have happened realistically? I think it was probably impossible. If we jump back to, say, 20. 13, 2014, 2015. It's actually very interesting. You you read the doctrines that militaries write, you know, and they're they're all published. And and back then, like you, you there's this very like def- definitive sense, I think, you get from militaries that they feel like they are being left behind in the information age. You know, and they I, I think they feel that they are very old school, you know, these big clanking bureaucracies of steel and missiles. And they they can see that information is becoming more central and they're asking themselves these questions about what do they do in this context? What how do they re-engineer themselves? And and I think the answer they all get is really this absolutely fateful conceptual pivot, which is to stop seeing information as a tool of war, which of course um, I'm sure everyone is telling themselves at home now has been done for thousands of years. That's absolutely true. But instead to see it as a theatre of war. So it actually began to be conceived as like up there with air, sea, land and space. It's something that war happens within. And everything else, I think it kind of it tumbles out of that realisation. So they start building capabilities, you know, especially autocracies, of course, to kind of manoeuvre and dominate information spaces. And of course, social media platforms were probably first and foremost in their crosshairs at that point. Unfortunately, in those early days, you know, that kind of realization for militaries collided with a great sense of naivete from the platforms themselves. And I remember around that time being in Silicon Valley, going in and talking to the platforms about this kind of emerging threat that we were seeing. And they were talking about it quite cheerfully as some form of spam. So they, they, they were like, oh, yeah, that's government mm-hmm. spam. As if, you know, this was just up there with like some you know, kind of marketer trying to get you to buy Bitcoin or something. Um, you know, I don't think they really realise just how politically um, important the information spaces that they were creating were, were going to be, and therefore they didn't really build um, defences in um, in those in those early years, either the teams or the platform mechanics. But I don't think you were ever going to keep states out. We have to remember, you know, states are the most powerful things that exist in the world, and when they decide to start building capabilities to dominate information spaces, they're they're really going to do it. And in that case, so like looking to the future, is there a world in which do you think that we can kind of keep the internet broadly as it is, like you know our big platforms, etc. But in a way, again, that's not making the world kind of actively worse, and that that is you know perhaps again managing to keep those people out or trying to take the kind of sting out of what they're doing and saying and spreading, etc. Like it, it, would it be you know can we have both? Like can we have a better internet, but still an internet that kind of looks and feels the way it currently does? Oh, I mean, we can certainly have a better internet for sure. And and there, you know, to, to bring this back to the United Nations intervention, like one of the most helpful things that, that, that something like the UN can do is actually start to have strike positions on the actual platform engineering itself. I think it's much more useful for the, for the United Nations to start talking about 
um, standards around how we make the actual mechanics of the platform less gameable and less manipulable by anyone seeking to do information warfare, including states. You know, and they're the answers actually fairly straightforward in my point of view. I mean, you've got, you, we have to add friction. We have to slow stuff down. We have to make it harder to set accounts up. We have to make it harder for stuff to go viral. We have to make it harder for people to be able to spoof being crowds. Um, uh, but the problem there, of course, is that like all, you know, adding friction into platforms um, is exactly the opposite of what the commercial incentives for platforms are. So you want to grow as big as possible, you take friction away, you don't add it. So, so that's really also why these, these online spaces, you know, apart from being so massive and so important in the place where, as the UN report notes, we're now getting our news more than even television, are also very gameable and very vulnerable. Those, those self-same commercial incentives point in those both directions. And do you think those platforms actually take those risks seriously or are they kind of paying lip service whenever they have to? Like, do you think they're actually working to try and find ways to make stuff better? Or again, as you said, you know, they're kind of focused on the commercial imperatives and going, oh, well, you know, guess what? we're sort of doing our best while everyone is kind of looking at them going, that is obviously like, that could not possibly be your best. <laughs> like, you know, come on. That was the story of the last 10 years. Uh, which was them saying they are taking this seriously and lots of people saying they weren't. Um, I've always seen there to be this kind of elemental conflict that happens within the platforms, actually. You know, th- uh, let, let's remember, these, the, many of these are absolutely like eye-wateringly massive companies with all kinds of fiefdoms and mini kingdoms and, and so on actually within them. And on the one hand, you, you always have groups of people that are doing their absolute best to try and fix these problems. They're very passionate. They stay up all night. They're there trying to defend elections, you know, and that's like online safety, integrity, usually legal teams, usually policy teams, the people that basically take the heat. But then they always run up against revenue and growth, I think. And revenue and growth are always going to push in the other direction. They're they're always going to resist changes to the platform, say, around what content people see to make it less to do with gluing people on the platform and more to do with, say, democratic integrity. Like th- Those teams are never going to like that sort of thing. So yeah, there's always been people in there. I, 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 I don't think they've always won the battles they've needed to, though, within the platforms themselves. Um, and that's probably why we really have the platforms that we have now. You have a project called Beam. Uh, could you tell us a bit about it? Sure. So Beam, Beam's, um, well, it's been around since about 2015 now. Um, it's a cooperation between Chasm Tech, where I am, and um, our colleagues at the Institute for Student Dialogue. And it's really about actually trying to defend elections. So we've been around for about 10 years, really, trying to tech up and kit up civic society around information defence. So the point of Beam is we, we try and deploy it like in the run-up to an election or, or say, currently with the COP summit or... Sometimes when, um, say, activists or journalists are being harassed, and then we try and basically use the underlying technology, and most of my colleagues at Chasm basically work on artificial intelligence and natural language processing, we use all of that clever mathematics and models to basically try and spot these information threats that I've just been talking about, try and uncover campaigns, uncover harassment, uncover the ways in which, um, say, elections can be interfered with. Uh, and then try and push that into the different avenues that we have in order to try and respond to it. So sometimes talking to government, sometimes disclosing to the platform, sometimes publicly revealing them. Okay, and so how how scalable is it as a model? Because, you know, as you said, there's going to be lots of elections next year. I believe it's actually two thirds of democracies um, are having (laughs) some form of election next year. So can you really be across all that stuff? 
We can't, no. And what's become very clear to us is that with all the maths and all the all the algorithms in the world, they, they don't matter at all unless you're when you're deploying into an information space, you have the linguists, you know, and the subject matter experts and the political analysts that actually understand what on earth is going on going on, what a threat looks like and and what you can actually do about it. People on the ground, civic society organizations that are working with the affected communities or are working with investigative journalists. So I, you know, I wish this was a kind of cut and paste model that we could just do over all all forty odd elections, but but sadly, it's not going to. That's not going to be the the story of next year. It's not just us. Part of the good news part of this is that civic society and academia and government units, the whole ecosystem, has has kind of grown over the last say five years or so to try and defend information spaces, and that's growing all the time and 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 getting better all the time. And there's lots of frenetic innovation and new ideas happening there as well. I do fear, though, that going into next year, as we've seen the case running up to now, you know, it tends to be Western, European and American English language information spaces that get like the vast majority of the focus and the vast majority of the research. And, you know, sadly, we, we, we see time and time again that elections happening in other languages and other parts of the world tend to have fewer layers of information defence put on them. Which we're trying. I mean, what, and one of the reasons we actually created Beam was to move outside of English language as quick as possible, and 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 uh, try and um, detect online manipulation happening elsewhere in the world uh, uh, as well. And so, zooming back into the UK, just to finish, like, I believe you've been and you've mentioned it today. You're a supporter of the Online Safety Act, uh, which has, it's fair to say, been proven to be quite controversial here. Uh, could you explain why you back it? I back it because I think it finally manages to lift the responsibilities for dealing with this away from the platforms and onto the only thing that we could ever have used to deal with these questions, which is messy democracy and politics. We're never going to agree about lots of these different things that we need to around online online harms, especially what disinformation looks like, especially what the truth is, of course. But actually, the act that we've got come out doesn't really deal with disinformation it it's it, i mean i think it does something which is basically very sensible which it creates responsibilities for the platforms to deal with things on their platforms which are already illegal that's already breaches of court orders or already death threats dealing with already illegal stuff is a very very basic <laughs> requirement that we need anyone making you know lots of money hosting social media platforms to deal with and so do you think it will be enough? Because I feel like it, it, it probably won't be. I, I feel quite confident in saying that, you know, that there's more to be done. So what, what, for example, let's say a Labour government should be looking at in that kind of sphere when they come in uh, after the election? The most obvious one, and I think the, 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 la- the most glaring um, gap in it is around data access. So we're, I think this is pretty much the only regulatory framework in the world that doesn't require the platforms to make available data to researchers. Everyone else recognises that the only way in which you can make clear-sighted, properly evidenced decisions is with research. What are the threats? Have they got worse or are they getting better? What's the scale of them? Who are they targeting? What possible harm could they have? This ecosystem I've already described, you know, the think tanks like mine and, uh, and, um, and academics and, and other researchers and startup companies, everyone who does work there is, is having their work used by now regulators and governments and civil society organizations that are trying to respond. And that just goes away without the data. And that's basically what's happening in the UK at the moment. So um, 
platforms are basically withdrawing in large and small ways data access. And that means we're just getting way less informed, which is particularly scary, actually, going into next year. Next year is quite a big gap, I think, where we really haven't seen the regulatory regimes kick into action yet. But we also have seen um, data being removed from the uh, data access being removed from platforms. So um, I think like probably next year is going to be the year of like greatest threat and greatest risk. Oh, well, actually, on that note, and to kind of finish, how worried are you about kind of, you know, I don't want to call it online disinformation anymore, but I don't really know what to call it in a snappy way. But, you know, that stuff, (laughs) how how worried are you about that stuff on the kind of short, medium and long term? So, yeah, it's it's hard. And I think one of the reasons we've used disinformation as a word is simply because there isn't really a catchy replacement to it. Sadly, so it remains the kind of catch-all. But thank you, Marie, for not using it. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> your, uh, your embrasure of, uh, of, of my criticism of it. How worried am I? Next year, pretty worried. Lots of elections, lots of democratic processes, like not just obviously the, the prospect of, of elections being influenced, but also our perception of elections being influenced. And then on the other hand, regulatory regimes here and in Europe taking their time to get into action, to get into speed. And I don't think we'll be up to speed next year, probably. And at the same time, lots of platforms around the world have fired the people that should be protecting information spaces and have begun to retrench on data access. So short term to middle term, worried. Longer term, very optimistic. Um, I think I think we're getting there. Oh, cool. That, that's a sort of nice note to end it on. I feel like, you know, it's slightly bittersweet, but still, we'll take what we can get. Um, that was fascinating. Thank you so much, Carl. Thanks, Marie. And listeners, there are some changes coming into the bunker. Over the past few weeks, we ran a reader survey to see what you like about the podcast, what you don't like, and what we could do better. One thing was pretty clear from the responses. We've been giving you slightly too many episodes to keep up with. As a result, we're now going over to five days a week schedule, Monday to Friday, so we don't swamp you. We'll keep Start Your Week on Mondays and then run four original editions for the rest of the working week, including favourites like Bunker USA. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte and you were listening to The Bunker. Bunker Daily was presented by Marie LeConte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Eliza Davis-Beard and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by James Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.